On today's episode, we have a couple of truly random movies, starting with Ocean's Eleven from 2001 and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 1990. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it like i said today on the show these movies are two truly random ones i usually stick to maybe a little bit of a theme in each episode but not always it's usually the randomness is from episode to episode but with this one you're gonna get the randomness all bundled into one episode so I mean, obviously, there's not a lot of overlap on the Venn diagram for these two. They're pretty dissimilar. I couldn't really find any similarities, really, between the two of them, other than maybe people teaming up to do stuff. That's about it. So, I mean, maybe the theme of today's episode is teamwork. That could be it. Uh, So, I did also want to talk about a little bit with, especially Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, violence in movies and how it's perceived by the media, by parents, by all sorts of different people. A movie like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was notoriously considered violent by a lot of parents and they didn't like it and they had all this backlash when they released the movie because it was PG and it's just it's very strange to me because it doesn't really seem like it was that bad but maybe I'm just desensitized to it and I know that for the sequel to the movie they actually didn't even have them really use their weapons at all they just had them use other random things that they had found to attack people with and it's like doesn't isn't that doing basically the same thing are you really saving anything and I guess I would say it's good not to get desensitized to violence but at the same time sometimes violence is so fucking cool in these movies I mean I'll give you some examples I was watching a clip from the movie Drive with Ryan Gosling the other day And there's this scene where he's in this hotel, I think it is, and these men come to kill him and whoever he's with. And it's just, it's so violent and there's so much gunshots going off and him reacting and hiding and attacking these people. And I mean, it's fucking great. It's a really cool sequence. And if we had to tone down, I mean, that's obviously rated R, but... If you had to tone that down to a PG audience, it'd be nothing. That movie would be worthless, honestly, if it didn't have that R rating. I guess just something to think about. If you're if you're out there and you're feeling like something's a little too violent, maybe just don't watch it. I, I don't think there's as much of a problem anymore because PG is, in my experience recently, it's been pretty tame movies. They're not super fucking bad, so I guess there's that, but... Alright, so I guess we'll dive right into these movies, starting with Ocean's Eleven, which was released on December 7th, 2001. It's the remake of the movie from 1960 of the same name, directed by Steven Soderbergh, and he made the other Ocean's Eleven movies, and I don't really remember either of the two. I just remember there being a really bad plotline in Ocean's Twelve, where Julia Roberts plays herself, and I didn't like that at all. I thought that was 
the dumbest idea for a plot ever. And Ocean's 13, all I remember is seeing the previews and Matt Damon was wearing a false nose or something and trying to drink out of a champagne flute or something. Another one that Steven Soderbergh has done is Side Effects, and I saw this in theaters, and it was actually a really solid movie. I haven't gone back and revisited, but it was really well done, and I really liked the story, and I liked the whole concept of it. It was just really cool. And then last but not least for him, what I'll talk about is Logan Lucky, and I've said this before, but it's basically Ocean's Eleven with rednecks, and it's fucking awesome. I just absolutely adore that movie. It's so much fun. They've got these southern accents, and you know, it's Adam Driver and Channing Tatum, and Daniel Craig is in it as well, and they really do an amazing job with that movie. I really like the way they orchestrate this whole thing, and it's definitely worth checking out if you ever get a chance, if you find it on streaming or something like that obviously give it a watch so for the writer we have ted griffin producer jerry weintraub and for the score we have composer david holmes for the cast we have george clooney who plays danny ocean and he rose to prominence on the show er i've never seen a single episode of that show but apparently he was on it for a while and he really got a lot of attention. He was in the movie Batman and Robin, previously covered on this podcast, which is a steaming pile of shit, and I think I made it pretty clear during that episode that I was not a fan of Batman and Robin. He was also in The Thin Red Line, and I I swear to God, there are, I've never seen this movie, but there are so fucking many people in this movie, I just need to check it out, I think. Every time I look somebody up, they're like, oh yeah, by the way, they were in the Thin Red Line. And I don't know if it was another studio's answer to Saving Private Ryan or something, but it seems like it could be pretty fucking awesome. And then last but not least for Clooney, he was in a personal favorite of mine called Up in the Air with Vera Farmiga and Anna Kendrick. And it's such a great little movie. I mean, there's not a whole ton to it really, but it's very watchable and highly enjoyable in my opinion it's it's really a great concept for a movie so next up we have Brad Pitt who plays Rusty Ryan and he was in Fight Club which is an episode that I have recorded of this podcast I can't say that it's been released yet but just a little sneaky peek if you uh were curious if I was going to cover Fight Club at some point it definitely happened and so I I would definitely obviously if you've never seen Fight Club Definitely check it out. It's very cool. Definitely don't look into anything about it. Try and figuring anything out. Just go in uninhibited and and just watch. He was also in Snatch, which is a Guy Ritchie movie. And that's probably the best Guy Ritchie movie, in my opinion. And Brad Pitt's awesome in it. He plays, I think he's like a bare-knuckle boxer. And it's just fucking great. They really do a great job with that story. And Guy Ritchie has this certain style with his movies. He's always got a big cast and all this stuff and they have a certain sense of humor it's all very enjoyable and then last but not least one that's a little lesser heard of obviously Brad Pitt has other movies and so does George Clooney but I'm only covering a few Brad Pitt was in Burn After Reading and that one was a Coen Brothers movie and it was actually a bit of a comedy but it still had these really cool story elements that are just unique to Coen Brothers. They just, they know how to make these cool plot lines that have so many different elements to them. And it's just, but this one is downright silly for the most part. I mean, it's just funny and it's really enjoyable. It's also got George Clooney in it, I think, and uh, 
Francis McDormand and John Malkovich even. So, I mean, it's definitely a great one. I would check it out, but go in with a lighthearted mood because you don't really want to watch it if you're expecting something super serious. Next up, we have Julia Roberts, who plays Tess Ocean. She was in Pretty Woman, which is a solid chick flick. I'm not a big Richard Gere fan, but it was a pretty decent one. And Jason Alexander plays a scumbag in it, and it's pretty decent. It's not bad. She was also in Sleeping with the Enemy, which is probably my favorite Julia Roberts movie. It's about this woman who is abused by her husband, and she orchestrates this elaborate plan to escape and go into hiding. And it's it's very intense. It's a very exciting movie. It's highly enjoyable. Definitely worth checking out. Then we have Matt Damon, who plays Linus Caldwell, and he was in Goodwill Hunting, which is a great movie. Definitely check that one out. It's it's a drama. It's definitely, I love the, the Southie Boston accents and all that stuff in it. And the way everything just comes together in the plot. It's very cool. It's, it's really well done. It's got Ben Affleck in it and Robin Williams as well. So definitely a lot of good things going in that movie. He was also in The Legend of Bagger Vance, which is a movie about a golfer who has to overcome his demons from being in the war to compete in a golf tournament. And I gotta say, I used to love that movie when I was a little kid, and I tried watching it when I was older, and this child actor that they have in that movie is truly awful. He is just not good, and I can't believe they didn't audition a few more people before going crazy casting him, of all people. Matt Damon was in the Bourne movies, which are all pretty solid. I mean, the first one's probably the best that I've seen. I haven't seen the most recent one Matt Damon did, the, I think it's the Bourne Legacy or something like that. But they're all pretty solid little spy thriller type movies. I I really enjoy the Bourne movies. And he also did The Departed, which was a huge cast. It was a Martin Scorsese movie. I believe it won Best Picture, not that that fucking matters, and it was just all around a great story, and it was actually a remake of a foreign film, and it was was really great. I mean, really, what Martin Scorsese was able to do with that movie was spectacular. And then we have Casey Affleck, who plays Virgil Malloy. He was in the movie Soul Survivors, which was previously covered on this podcast and was one of the worst movies I've probably ever seen that I had any reason to believe it could have been good. It was just, it was a really bad horror movie. It was not good. He was also in The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, and I cannot stress this enough, make your titles shorter. If it's that long, just call it The Assassination of Jesse James. It doesn't have to be by the coward Robert Ford in the title. You're getting enough from the assassination of Jesse James. Anywho, Don Cheadle plays Basher Tar, and he was in the Marvel movies as James Rhodes slash War Machine or Iron Patriot, depending on when you talk to him. And he's really great in those. He took over for Terrence Howard, who was the original James Rhodes in the first Iron Man movie. And basically, it was going to be like, they ha- we're going to have to pay Terrence Howard way too much money to keep him on. So they basically just went with Don Cheadle going forward. And I actually like him a lot better than Terrence Howard, personally. I know a lot of people disagree, but I think he's really good. He was in a movie called Hotel Rwanda, and I still need to watch that one. It just seems like it'd be a really 
difficult to sit through watch just it's about the rwandan genocide i think and i i just can't even fucking imagine it just sounds like a lot to sit through and then he was also in i dare not forget to mention this he was in space jam a new legacy which was a movie that defined our entire generation because it was so great and well done and completely enjoyable yep mm-hmm Okay, so also featured in this immense cast are Bernie Mac, Elliot Gould, Scott Kahn, Carl Reiner, and Andy Garcia, and they all also have fairly major roles, but I didn't really want to have to go through each of their filmographies, it just didn't seem like it was worth it, and I feel like I'm droning on and on if I keep talking about one cast member after another and talking about different movies and things like that, so... For casting notes, we have cameos from five television actors who appear as themselves being taught how to play poker by Rusty, who is Brad Pitt's character. The actors are Holly Marie Combs, who I know from that show Charmed about the young female witches that are always getting into hijinks and whatnot. Topher Grace, who is from That 70s Show, he played Eric Foreman on that, and I love that show, especially the first three to five seasons. I can't remember where the cutoff is, but... Basically, the show isn't that great, even before Topher Grace and uh, Ashton Kutcher leave the show. Then we have Joshua Jackson, who was in Dawson's Creek, which I've never seen an episode of, and the Mighty Ducks movies, which are childhood favorites of mine. I used to think they were wonderful. Barry Watson, who was in the show Seventh Heaven, which is legitimately not a great show. I, I mean, it's super religious, and I just really wasn't going all in on that show. It's It just wasn't that good. And last but not least of these television actors, we have Shane West, and apparently he was in something called Once and Again, and I don't know at all what this show is or what relevance it had. But he was also in the movie A Walk to Remember with Mandy Moore. And I just remember about that movie that it seemed like maybe Mandy Moore had one of the most bland personalities of all time. But I it, I could be wrong. It could have been bad acting. It could have been bad writing. I don't know. So next we have Johnny Depp and Mark Wahlberg were being considered for the role of Linus Caldwell, which ultimately went to Matt Damon. Mark Wahlberg turned down the role to star in Planet of the Apes from 2001, which may have been a bad call on his part because that movie was fucking awful. Luke and Owen Wilson were in discussions to play the Malloy twins. However, the Wilsons had to vacate due to their commitment to the Royal Tenenbaums from 2001. Mike Myers, Bruce Willis... Ewan McGregor, Alan Arkin, and Rafe Fiennes were all considered for roles, but ended up dropping out ultimately. For a plot synopsis, pretty brief, a recently paroled ex-con assembles a large team of men to carry out a heist on three Las Vegas casinos simultaneously. Alright guys, let's dive right into this fucking plot. So, we get George Clooney as Danny Ocean at his parole hearing, just to start off the movie. They ask him about all these crimes that he was accused of committing but was never actually charged for or with or whatever. Basically, they just want to know if he'll go back to a life of crime after he gets paroled. And obviously, that's probably what most of these parole hearings are about. They want to find out if they think that this criminal can actually be rehabilitated and, and do the right thing. 
So a little bit of trivia, there's actually a scene in the trailer in which Danny asks the parole board members how much they earn a year. This was cut from the movie because the director talked to some actual parole board members and they all agreed that if a prospective parolee were to make that comment, he would be denied parole. So they let him out, obviously, you know, I mean, this is a fucking movie, we gotta do something here. And I don't really love Clooney with facial hair in this one, to be honest. It's not a good look, and I'm really glad he shaves up. I think he looks better in this movie. I'm not saying he looks bad in all other things when he has facial hair. I'm just saying in this movie, not so much. So he basically goes right to a casino and starts gambling and recruits Bernie Mac. And Danny is looking for a man named Rusty after he talks to Bernie Mac. And Rusty's played by Brad Pitt, as I mentioned. And he's been teaching people how to play poker in his spare time. Which, I mean, he's got to have more going on than that, right? Just for income? Like, how much is he actually making off of these people? How is he making ends meet? I just don't understand it. So we see Rusty with all of these TV stars in the back room at this club, and he's showing them the ins and outs of poker and all that stuff, and and it's such a ridiculous scene. All of these celebrities are just clueless, and they're all really overselling how bad they are at poker and how dumb they are. I've seen or heard of a lot of these celebrities, but I don't really know Shane West from anything other than that Mandy Moore movie. But God, Brad Pitt, he is such a fucking sexy motherfucker in this movie, I swear to God. I I mean, I'm comfortable enough in my sexuality to say this. He is a good-looking guy, especially in this movie. So Danny shows up, and there's tension between Danny and Rusty, and you can just tell that they have some kind of history together, but you don't really know what it is. They wrap up playing poker, and Danny and Rusty go for a little ride. Danny explains his plan to Rusty about knocking off three casinos simultaneously, and Rusty can't really believe it, but he can't help but be intrigued either. Just so you know where I stand on the whole robbing three casinos at once, I would be opposed since I would most definitely be the guy that fucked up what he was supposed to do and ruin the entire heist. Just just so we're clear, don't ever ask me to do a casino heist. Thank you, I appreciate it. So they've picked three casinos that are owned by a man named Terry Benedict, who is played by Andy Garcia, and it's really not clear at this point if there's a specific reason he's targeted Benedict's casinos. Danny convinces Rusty to do it. You know, it takes a little bit of doing, but he he gets through to him. And they go to see this guy, Ruben, who is a former casino owner. He tells a couple of stories, and he gives us a pretty cool sequence going over the closest incidents where people almost managed to knock off casinos but still got caught. So initially, Ruben thinks the idea is fucking nuts and just cannot be pulled off. But when he finds out that they picked Benedict Casinos, he gets interested because Benedict is an old rival of his and he really wants to get back at him. I love the characters in this fucking movie. All of them, as you meet them one by one, they're all really cool. They have these really cool ways about them and all that stuff. I just really enjoy that aspect of this movie. So we get another little sequence, this time going through the different guys they're trying to recruit. The brothers we see are a couple of fucking goofballs. They're fucking racing each other with one using a remote control monster truck and the other in a real monster truck. The one in the real monster truck ultimately is struggling against the remote control and just simply runs over the RC car and it's pretty fucking funny. We meet Don Cheadle, who plays Basher Tar, and he has this god-awful Cockney accent. 
And he actually admitted that it was really bad and wanted to fix it in subsequent installments of the movies, but his agent wouldn't let him because of continuity, I guess, and I guess that's okay. I don't know. But basically, Bashir Tar is an explosives expert. Then there are a lot of people that they go check out, like this Chinese acrobat named Yen. Apparently, the actor who played Yen didn't speak much English and required a translator in order to know what to do and what to say in the movie. Then there's Carl Reiner, who plays Saul, who is a retired con man, and Rusty comes to chat with him at a dog race. Saul wants to stay retired, but Rusty still gives him the pitch. He's basically just like, here's how it goes, this is what you want to do, blah blah blah, trust me. So they now have ten men, and there's this great scene where Danny is talking to Rusty, but Rusty isn't actually responding to what Danny says, and Danny just figures out what he's thinking somehow, and they establish that they need one more man for the job without Rusty saying a fucking thing, and I just absolutely love it. Enter Matt Damon as Linus Caldwell. He's a pickpocket. Linus meets with Danny, and he's naturally apprehensive since he doesn't know him at all, and he's asking him to do such a huge thing. We get some cool shots of the Vegas casinos just looking out over the strip, and that's obviously to be expected in a movie like this. The Bellagio fountains, by the way, are so fucking cool. It's great free sightseeing in Vegas if you ever get a chance to go out. But if you ever do get a chance to go there, I'll only go for maybe three or four nights since the experience kind of wears on you after a while, and it just it isn't as fun as it is when you first get there. So all of the men meet at what I'm pretty sure is Ruben's place, and he's the former casino owner. Danny explains to them that no one is on the hook yet, and any of them can just walk away and not do the job at this point. And then he goes inside to pitch the plan to them, and I love all of this fucking planning and the presentation, and they just really roll out this plan really well and explain it, and it's also informative and clever. He explains that the Nevada Gaming Commission requires casinos to have enough cash on hand to cover all of their patrons' bets, and obviously that amount varies. Of course, the night of a fight would be when they need the most money. So they talk about how they have to get through these cages and then through the doors with a six-digit code, then an elevator and a series of security procedures beyond that. Saul points out the gaping flaw of having to get the actual money out of the casino. Like, that's where it's all hung up. And they don't really acknowledge him. They don't really say anything. And they're basically just researching everything about security and the guards, whatever. It all just seems a little daunting to me. Even if I were into that kind of thing, I wouldn't know that I'd want to try and knock this casino off. But it is pretty clear that Danny isn't sharing the full plan with the audience for obvious reasons. I'm pretty surprised that it takes so fucking long to introduce Julia Roberts in this. She's still not in the movie yet, and it's been over a half an hour, and I'm like, where the fuck is she? So the way they have to orchestrate all the stuff that they have to do is fucking genius. Each guy plays his part, and every part is critical, but, you know, obviously it's some things are more involved than others. What confused me initially is that they were going to rob three casinos at once, But in reality, they're robbing the same single vault used by three casinos that are all on the same block on the strip and owned by the same guy. They do things like creating a diversion by releasing a bunch of balloons to cover a camera while one of the men breaks in, and he does something to the wiring in the back room, and they almost get caught, and it's 
pretty intense, but this is still very early on. They decide to build an exact working replica of the Bellagio vault, which is fucking nuts to me. I feel like it would take way more time just to build that than the two weeks that they have to do anything, in my opinion. Like, that's the whole point of contention I have here. I don't really buy the whole Bellagio replica thing. Bernie Mac has to sweet-talk a car salesman about getting them transportation. And honestly, if this didn't happen with Bernie Mac, I feel like he just falls completely out of this movie. He's barely... He's got one other scene, but I'll talk about that later. It's just... He doesn't have a ton to do in this movie, I don't think. So he shakes the salesman's hand for a super uncomfortably long period of time, and the salesman finally cuts him a little deal. Saul gets suited up to do a bit as a guy with an accent who is supposed to be, I guess, kind of a big deal businessman type. We see what kind of guy Benedict is, and he owns and oversees the operations at the three hotel casinos, and he's a real unlikable knob, in my opinion. Linus and Rusty are at one of the casinos, and they're talking about Benedict, and Linus describes this woman he's trying to figure out if they can use in their heist, and Rusty recognizes her as Tess, who is Danny Ocean's ex-wife, played by Julia Roberts. He knows that she's not an option, at the very least, to help them, and he's just like, no, 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 I don't like this at all. So, trivia, during the several takes it took to shoot the scene in which Rusty and Linus are spying on Tess as she is introduced coming down the stairs, Brad Pitt, who plays Rusty eating shrimp from a shrimp cocktail, ate 40 shrimp, which is definitely more shrimp than I have ever eaten in my entire life because I fucking hate shrimp and I genuinely don't like seafood for the most part, within reason. So Rusty comes back to Danny to ask him if the whole heist has anything to do with Tess, and Tess is now with Benedict, so it really does seem like Danny has an ulterior motive here. Rusty wants Danny to step away from the whole thing, but Danny says no, and Saul is, he's doing his thing in his disguise, and he's seen by Benedict, and this man tries to explain to Benedict who Saul's character is, but he obviously hasn't ever heard of the guy because he's just fucking made up. Danny comes to see Tess, and Tess is not interested in being around him, and she basically just says that she's through with him. She's with Benedict now, and that's where she's firmly taking her stance. It's a very sad conversation, though, since you know Danny has probably put Tess through quite a lot, and she's had to deal with a lot of things that nobody would want to deal with. So anyway, Saul tries to arrange having Benedict put his stuff in somewhere more secure than the house safe at the casino, and you don't really know what his endgame is, but you just know he's driving at something, he has some reason to want to get into there. So Benedict arrives and interrupts Danny and Tess, and he seems really suspicious of Danny, and at about an hour in, the anticipation of the heist is fucking maximum. It's, it is at an all-time high. So Don Cheadle delivers some bad news. Uh, apparently, his plans to cut the power were to exploit a weakness in the system, but because of a building demolition, they discovered this vulnerability that he was going to use and fixed it so Don Cheadle can't use that way anymore. Cheadle explains how they could use something called a pinch, which would use an electromagnetic pulse to kill the power in Vegas for 30 seconds. 
I love the back and forth of these brothers that are always arguing with each other. In case I didn't mention it, they're played by Scott Kahn and Casey Affleck, and they're really enjoyable. So they're in a van stealing the thing to do the pinch with, and man, I I know I already said it, but Cheadle's accent is pretty fucking bad, to be honest. Anyway, they almost get caught because Linus wants to go inside, and he wasn't supposed to, and if he did something worthwhile while he was in there, I totally fucking missed it. I don't know what the hell happened. And then Danny finds out he's been red flagged at the casinos and won't be able to be seen on the floors. This comes as a result of the convo with Benedict and Tess. I just don't honestly know. Am I supposed to believe that this was Danny's plan all along? But if it was, honestly, it was a fucking genius plan. It puts the whole team in a really tough spot because they were obviously relying on Danny to do certain things. Rusty's coaching Linus now on how to handle himself as he's going to be doing what Danny was going to do. And it's fight night, which means it's fucking ice night. And I want to know, could you still smoke in Vegas casinos in 2001? I mean, I don't know if you can now even, but it just, it doesn't seem... I know I remember being able to, at the very early points of my being able to smoke, I could smoke in a bar in my hometown. I'm not sure. I was just kind of curious because you see somebody smoking in a casino and it just seems off to me. But it was just simpler times, obviously. So Benedict leads Saul to put away his briefcase in the special vault and Benedict won't allow Saul into the vault because he just says he straight up does not trust him, and that's probably a good call on Benedict's part. So Saul has to watch them take his briefcase on security camera, and I gotta say, Luke and Owen Wilson as the brother characters in this movie would not have been as good. These brothers are fucking hilarious, and I don't think that the, I mean, even though the Wilson brothers are actual brothers, I still don't think they would have done as good. So Linus is posing as a Nevada Gaming Commission guy and uses this to talk with Benedict, Meanwhile, they're hiding Yen, the acrobat, in a room service cart, presumably to be taken down to the vault. Linus orchestrates a fake bust of Bernie Mac in front of Benedict. You know, he basically says that he's uh, an ex-con or or whatever it is that he has on him, that basically he just reveals this and gets Bernie Mac in trouble and kind of, I don't know, it, it distracts Benedict for a while. So Danny goes to see Tess again, and Tess tells Danny that no matter what, he won't win her back. So he says he just came to say goodbye to her, and she says bye, and they seemingly part ways, probably never to see each other again at all, ever, of course, because there's no way that this is going to circle back around. So Linus is grilling Bernie Mac, and Bernie Mac's turning it into a race thing, the whole interrogation. And Rusty and this other guy are giving instruction from the hotel into what seemed to be obvious earpieces. I don't know if I'm actually not supposed to be able to tell that they have earpieces in, but mission failed if I was if it was supposed to be hidden. The brothers managed to make a scene and get them to take the cart with the acrobat into the vault, but with actually knowing what's going on after the big reveal, it's incredibly hard to tell what they've actually been doing and what's not really going on at all. So Benedict fires and subsequently kicks Bernie Mac out of the casino. Linus makes up a story about forgetting his beeper, and Benedict doesn't have time to go back with him, so he leaves him to it, and obviously Linus is going to go do some shit. I feel like if I'm Benedict, I'm cool with being late to whatever, and I need to go back with Linus, or at least get someone to go back with him. 
we see all of these fingerprint locks in action, and they're pretty cool. Meanwhile, Danny is pretending to have the shit kicked out of him by a man who is basically working for Benedict, but he's on Danny's payroll. It's pretty fucking sneaky. It's a really cool idea. The security guards with Saul watching the cameras almost bust Linus, but Saul fakes a medical attack of some sort. I don't I don't really know what he's supposed to be faking, and I don't think that he knows either. Tess and Benedict are busy at the fight as Rusty arrives, pretending to be a doctor for Saul, and Rusty has the absolute most hilarious fucking wig and glasses on as this doctor. It's fucking great. The guy is still pretending to beat up Danny to appease the guards waiting outside the room. Danny and Linus rappel down a shaft with a bunch of lasers in it, and it's so fucking tense. Don Cheadle sets off the pinch, and all the power goes out, of course, and Linus and Danny drop these cool glow sticks down the shaft and rappel all the way down. Chaos is broken out in the casino floors due to the blackout. Like, could you fucking imagine sitting in a casino, especially in Vegas, and having a blackout hit and having all hell break loose? Yen starts to do his thing in the vault, and Linus and Danny slide this slick little disc that knocks out these guards by an elevator, and they're going to meet Yen in the vault, and Yen is honestly pretty fucking slick as he jumps around and contorts his body and stuff to not touch the ground. So this is the last thing I'll say about it. What's so strange about Don Cheadle having an accent is that it was wholly unnecessary. I'm sorry, I like I, I know I keep harping on this, but it's like... It didn't really add anything to the character at all. You didn't need it. If you would have just been a plain American accent or something, it would have been fine and it would have been normal and nobody would have been like, hey, how come that guy doesn't have an accent? So they're going to blow the door to the vault and the acrobat is actually stuck right there and it'll kill him. But the detonator malfunctions and it buys them enough time that Yen can get away. Rusty has to make a call to Tess and she doesn't have a cell phone. Danny planted it on her earlier, I think, when he was talking talking to her and basically Rusty calls to talk to Benedict so Rusty basically taunts Benedict about robbing him and he sees proof on his security cameras so he knows it's legit Benedict asks Tess to leave the room and Rusty informs Benedict that he's leaving half of the loot booby-trapped as leverage against the casino to make them allow them to take the other half Benedict is faced with a choice Do you let someone get away with this if you can stop them? Or do you focus on the PR side of things and not show what a whole fiasco is going on in your casino? I don't know. Tess finds Rusty still on the phone with Benedict, and Rusty gives Benedict instructions on how to handle the money and lets them know not to pull any tricky stuff or they'll destroy the money. Benedict complies and is angry and threatens Rusty and tells him to run and hide. It pains Benedict to watch all of this shit happen since he's powerless to stop it. So some men come to find the van where the money is supposed to be, and eventually it's blown up by remote control, and they find out that the bags that they thought were full of money were actually full of flyers for hookers. And if you've never been to Vegas, these fucking hooker flyers and cards are basically forced on you by numerous people on the street everywhere. It's just nonstop. But you can also drink, so it kind of takes the edge off of that. Rusty mocks Benedict by acting as one of the guards without him knowing. Benedict realizes that they staged the heist using their fake vault and played that on the security monitors instead of actually breaking into the vault the way it was presented. The whole thing with that is 
the actual vault had recently added a Bellagio logo on the floor, and it's not present in the replica vault, so it's that's what gives it away. They pretend to be a SWAT team, and they steal all the money that way somehow, and it's so awesome watching how it's actually unfolded, the way they staged everything at the casino. But honestly, I don't really think I could go through and explain all of what was fucking happening in this movie and what was fake or what was real or what every puzzle piece was meant to accomplish because I'm just not smart enough. I don't know. I I just, I can't do it. So then they just leave in the SWAT vans and they take the money with them. Benedict comes back to Danny to find him still getting beat up in the room with the guards. He asks Danny if he had a hand in the heist and Danny denies the whole thing. Benedict is basically about to let Danny go and someone calls Tess and tells her to put her TV on channel 88 and she sees Danny talking to Benedict Danny asks Benedict if he would give up Tess in exchange for the money, and Benedict says yes with pretty much minimal hesitation, and that's pretty fucked up if you ask me, honestly. Tess sees Benedict later and basically just tells him to fuck right off, and Andy Garcia does play a good unlikable guy, which is honestly the highest praise I can give him because I'm truly not a huge fan of his. I've not really seen anything that he was in that I really liked, but my sister was right about this, so... There are a lot of times when Julia Roberts is attractive, and then there are just times when she's not. I would say in Aaron Brockovich, she looks pretty fucking good. In this, not so much. Not for me. I don't know what it is about it. I mean, would I turn her down if the opportunity knocked? I don't think so. But I'm just saying, by Hollywood starlet levels of attractiveness, she's she's not up there for me. So Benedict had the police take Danny away for violating his parole because he's not supposed to be at a casino. Tess and Danny have a little heartfelt farewell as he's being loaded into the cop car and Danny says he'll be gone three to six months. And we see all of the guys calmly reflecting after the heist at the Bellagio fountains. Three to six months later, we see Rusty picking up Danny from prison and they go to Rusty's car and Tess is in the back seat. Danny and Tess make out in the back seat and they're fully aware that they're now being followed everywhere by what are presumably Benedict's men. And I guess that's just life now and that's how this movie leaves us even though we know there are sequels and other things happen. It's just the way it ends us. So that's the end of the movie. So praise for this movie. Obviously, the planning and presentation of the entire heist is spectacular. And I mean, that's if you didn't get that right in this movie, you don't have a movie here. The cool characters, just everybody's got these little cool things about them. And I just love them. And this movie is just awesome to look at. It's very well shot. It's got a lot of cool imagery and scenes in it. And I I just really enjoy it. For my criticism, I don't really have one. The only thing I'll say is I I would honestly just stick to this first one if I recall correctly. Watching the other two is not really worth it. This one's so fucking much better than those. So for trivia, we have the Bellagio let the crew tap into their security system to get real surveillance footage of the casino. The entire cast work for less than their usual salaries to bring down the budget. Don Cheadle is uncredited despite having a major role in this movie. This is due to a dispute over his billing. Cheadle wanted to be above the title billing alongside George Clooney, Matt Damon, and Brad Pitt, and when this idea was declined, he refused to be credited at all. Cheadle received above the title billing in Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13, though. The lead cast members lived at the Bellagio during filming, each in separate 7,000 square foot villas. 
With the exception of the title character Danny Ocean, none of the principal characters have the same names as their counterparts in the 1960 version of the film. Director Steven Soderbergh originally wanted to shoot the movie in black and white. Warner Brothers said he could only do that if he could drastically reduce the filming costs, so Soderbergh changed his mind, basically. Julia Roberts filmed all of her scenes in two weeks, which is the least shocking piece of trivia I've ever read. I mean, she's barely in this movie, and she doesn't go on location much. So there's a persistent rumor that Ben Affleck makes a cameo appearance in this movie. Although he did appear on set, he does not actually appear on screen in this movie at all. Then we have John Favreau was offered to write the screenplay to this movie, but turned it down. And last but not least, Bill Murray was supposed to play a lounge singer, but the part was dropped when Murray was busy filming the Royal Tenenbaums from 2001. Okay, so on to info and ratings. We have a runtime of 116 minutes, a budget of 85 million, opening weekend 38.1 million, worldwide gross 450.7 million, IMDb rating 7.7, Rotten Tomato Critics score 83%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 80%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. This is probably the best heist movie out there. And, I mean, there are a lot of good ones, but this one, it takes the cake. It's the first one I think of when I think of heist movies. It's fucking awesome. Alright, so moving on to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, released on March 30th, 1990, directed by Steve Barron. He was the director of the movie Coneheads, which I still have never seen and don't think I will. See my previous criticisms about Dan Aykroyd and you'll understand why I avoid it. He did The Adventures of Pinocchio with Jonathan Taylor Thomas, and that was truly god-awful. And it just... It seems like he had an overall downward trend in quality of films after Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And honestly, it's a bummer. I mean, you hate to see that. So for the writers, we have Todd W. Langan and Bobby Herbeck. Langan was a regular writer on the original The Wonder Years show. And Herbeck worked on various TV shows and was also given a story by credit for this movie. For the producers, we have Kim Dawson, Simon Fields, and David Chan. For the score, we have composer John Duprez, and he did Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, which is probably my least favorite of the three main Monty Python movies. I I love Holy Grail most of all, and I really enjoy Life of Brian, but Meaning of Life is kind of a mess to me. I'm not, I'm not as big of a fan of it. He did the score for A Fish Called Wanda, which was a pretty overrated comedy. I didn't really get the humor that they were trying to spell out for me and that I I didn't find it funny. And then he also scored the second two Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. And it is what it is. It's kind of nice to keep that continuity there. So for the cast, we have Judith Hogue, who plays April O'Neil. And she's been in some stuff that you probably would have heard of, but nothing else that I actually specifically remember her from. And then we have Elias Cotillas, who plays... Casey Jones, he was in the movie Fallen, which is about a serial killer who's executed and his spirit seemingly takes over a new body, and it's just, it's a little weird. It's not a terrible movie, but it's not great. He was also in The Thin Red Line, and I really fucking need to see that still, so I I think I've said enough about it, but, and he was in Shutter Island, and honestly, I love Leo and Scorsese, but the big reveal in this movie was 
one that I saw coming like a mile away, and I am usually so terrible at that. Next up, we have Corey Feldman, who voices Donatello, and he was in Friday the 13th, the final chapter, which is the fourth movie, and that's a solid Jason movie. Jason Voorhees, he's the guy with the hockey mask. Feldman's character makes these little homemade masks in that movie, and they're pretty fucking good. I really, I think it's a cool concept. He was in The Goonies, and I didn't see this one until I was at least in high school, so it doesn't really hit home for me like it should with childhood experiences with it. He was in Stand By Me, which is a great fucking Stephen King story. Definitely a future episode. There's a lot of solid child stars in this movie. Rob Reiner is just a masterful director. He's got some amazing movies. Some of my all-time favorite movies are Rob Reiner. And Stephen King himself even said that he fucking loved that movie and thought it was a great adaptation. Oh, and he was also in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, and I've only seen that one a couple of times, and it follows the downward trend in quality set by the second movie. Then we have Brian Tochi, who voices Leonardo. Then we have Josh Pies, who plays Raphael. Robbie Rist, who plays Michelangelo. Kevin Clash, who plays Splinter. And David McCharen, who plays Orokusaki slash The Shredder. For casting notes, we have Brian Tochi, the voice of Leonardo, and Robbie Rist, the voice of Michelangelo, are the only actors who appeared in all three live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. Little plot synopsis, a group of four turtles who were accidentally mutated to take on more human-like characteristics use their martial arts skills to stop a crime wave being carried out by a gang of criminal ninjas in New York City. So let's dive right into the plot, gang. So... We see a crime wave in progress with a bunch of thefts and burglaries happening with a news report featuring April O'Neil telling the story. And it's pretty cool. You know, it's like you hear her talking, but you're watching these actual crimes unfold. A man leaves his truck for just a second. And when he comes back out, it's completely cleaned out. And there are pretty much no witnesses to any of these things. But the narrative is that these crimes are not really isolated incidents. They're all working together, bringing what they get back to a hideout or a main hub or whatever. This is a great fucking way to kick off the movie. I really love the way they do it with the news report and just talking about, okay, this is the problem that our heroes are going to face and it's going to be awesome. So we understand the threat, but we only really see plainclothes teenagers carrying out the crimes, not whoever is actually orchestrating everything. So April is leaving work at the news studio and it's dark and she gets spooked by a rat. A little bit of foreshadowing there for you. She's wearing a big yellow raincoat, which is a nod to her outfit in the cartoon. And they tried to get Judith Hogue to wear something more similar to the cartoon, but I guess it was too revealing and she wouldn't go for it. So she's confronted by a group of thieves who tried to steal her purse and there's a big struggle. It's pretty unpleasant watching her try and stave off the attack. Then suddenly something knocks out the streetlight and it's totally fucking dark and we hear voices and what sounds like fighting noises and you know it's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles without a doubt, but we don't actually see them full on. But I feel like walking into a movie with this title, you're kind of expecting that, am I right? So the lights come back on and April is fine. She takes a psi weapon that she finds after the police come and puts it in her purse. We then get a little tour of the sewer for the opening credits, complete with super 80s sounding score. And I love this fucking film, I gotta say. This opening sequence just gets me so fired up, honestly. 
The turtles are brothers, and they're celebrating their little victory over the thieves, and Donatello's thing is that he always is saying something dorky in celebration, and they have to give him a hard time about it and all that fun stuff. They explain to Master Splinter about their run-in with the thieves, and he gets confirmation that they were not seen because, you know, that's the whole thing about ninjas, of course, is you're not supposed to get spotted and you're supposed to dwell in the shadows. So Raphael is pissed about losing his sigh in the fight, and it's something that you can be annoyed or upset about a little bit, of course, but... Raphael naturally dials his emotions up to 11 because that's his thing, basically. Splinter throws a book at Michelangelo, who is ordering a pizza very loudly while Splinter is trying to talk, and man, the puppet of Splinter does look like shit. It's pretty fucking rough. The puppet basically is just so wonky that through the whole wind-up of throwing this book and just the actual throw, it just looks really fucking iffy. So because they're teenagers, the turtles are still very immature and joke around too much for Splinter's liking. Raphael decides to go out to a movie and he puts on his hilarious Humphrey Bogart trench coat and fedora as a disguise, which would obviously be totally convincing if someone saw him. I know I kind of alluded to this already, but Raphael is the super pissy turtle. He always has an attitude about stuff and he's a bit of a loner at basically every opportunity where he's not forced to work with the other turtles. But he's arguably the most relatable turtle, which it's like, of course, as a kid, you're probably going to prefer Michelangelo or something like I did, but Mikey's just a fun-loving guy, and it's easier to respond to that when you're a kid. So Donatello and Michelangelo wait for pizza from Domino's, and the delivery guy violates the 30-minute limit, and the product placement is quite aggressive, honestly. So Michelangelo tells the delivery guy this awesome line that's basically made to sound like it's an old proverb, and he says, Wise man say forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for late pizza. Raphael is going to see a movie called Critters, which is a property coincidentally owned by New Line Cinema as well. What a shocker. New Line Cinema was a studio that managed to make a name for itself with the success of producing A Nightmare on Elm Street and its subsequent sequels. On his way back out of the movie, Raphael witnesses a crime in progress and breaks it up. The criminals flee, and they're met by a man named Casey Jones, played by Elias Kotias. Casey roughs them up a little bit, but Raph stops him for some reason, and then him and Casey get into a fight. Casey is pretty fucking cool looking, honestly. Like, he's got an old hockey mask on and a hockey goalie stick. And it's just, he's he's ready to fucking fight, and he's so fucking cool. It's just like this makeshift arsenal he has, and it's so, so awesome. So I don't really understand why they left Casey Jones out of the second movie, because he's way better than the dipshit Kino we get that basically fills that void. Kino was a fucking joke. I fucking hated him in that movie. So Raphael's hat gets knocked off, and Casey sees the mysterious creature he's been having a run-in with, and is obviously a bit weirded out. As I mentioned, Casey should have been able to tell Raphael didn't look right without the hat falling off, but that's neither here nor there. Raphael gets the best of Casey Jones for a second, but Casey knocks Raphael into a trash can with a cricket bat somehow. It's this thing in this movie that I don't really understand. We already had an animated version of these characters, so what's the point in making a live-action version so cartoonish? I mean, he hits Raph with this fucking bat, 
and Raphael literally flies no fewer than 10 feet through the air before landing. And it's like, what is that? I, I don't understand it. So Raphael ends up losing Casey and cries out, damn, on the way. And he often does that. That's kind of his thing. When Raphael gets back to the sewer hideout, Splinter wants to sit down and have a talk with him. And I can just feel the fucking pain of somebody wanting to quote unquote have a talk with you, especially when you personally don't feel like you're doing anything wrong at all. Splinter warns him about his anger, which is pretty reasonable, and he cautions Raphael about always going it alone since it's not good for his brain to shut everyone out and it can often be dangerous not to have help. Meanwhile, April is talking with her boyfriend Charles, who I believe is also her boss, and I mean, if he's just her boss, this is a fucking weird-ass relationship dynamic here, to be fair. Like, actually, I honestly refuse to believe that they're not fucking. They have to at least be fucking. There's no way. So we see Danny, who is Charles's son, at the apartment with them, and he was one of the kids committing crimes in the beginning of the movie. Charles bitches about him being a teenager, basically, and later on, April interviews the police chief, and he explains his plans to respond to the crime wave. The Turtles are watching the interview on TV, and they're so fucking in love with April, but this portrayal of the character is not my cup of tea. Judith Hoke is just not a very good April. But Paige Turco, who arrives in the second film of the series to replace Judith Hoke, is better in every fucking way. And I also, I might just be saying this because I'm a guy, but she's also much better looking, which, which is an important thing. At the police station, we see Danny being brought in with his hands in cuffs, and it's the biggest shock. Like, oh no, he was such a good kid. The police chief yells at April a lot for blowing up his shit because he doesn't want people to be knowing secret stuff like what a piece of shit he presumably is. And then she leaves. So she goes to the subway where the Foot Clan, who are the bad guys in this movie, confront her for running her mouth about them in the news. They basically start to rough her up, but Raphael comes and he saves her. Luckily, he manages to get his sigh back, which is really all he wanted. I would liken Raphael's sigh to a pacifier or a security blanket, basically. I like that everything in this universe was originally a parody of something that it subsequently became more popular than. The Foot Clan is actually a parody of The Hand, which is a gang of ninjas from the Daredevil stories, but I've never seen a Daredevil story featuring The Hand, and The Foot Clan is pretty much integral to the vast majority of Ninja Turtles stories. One of the Foot Guys sneaks down into the sewers following Raph and April, and he sees where the turtles hide out. It seems like this might just serve as a lesson about minding your surroundings and being aware if somebody's following you. April awakens in this dank-ass sewer where living things actually live, and she's pretty fucking freaked out by the whole giant rat and giant turtles, which is a natural response. She's blown away, she can't really honestly fucking believe what she's seeing, and she can't believe that they can talk on top of everything else. Splinter kind of explains their origin. So we go back 15 years, and Splinter goes over how he used to mimic his master Yoshi, who practiced martial arts. Pre-mutated Splinter actually found the turtles crawling in green ooze one day, and they quickly doubled in size, and so did he. And they used stop motion for the baby turtles, and it's kind of wonky. It's, it's pretty shitty. I know I've been using the word wonky a lot, but it's very appropriate. Splinter realized that they were all growing up really fast, and Splinter taught the young turtles the martial arts that he learned from his master. And that's kind of it for now for their origin story. We don't know much else about what happened there. 
we find out more later. So they keep coming in and out of manholes in this fucking movie. And I got to say, you just don't see manhole covers that fucking big around my neck of the woods at all. The poster for this movie had all four of the turtles peeking out of a manhole. And I would estimate that the manhole in question was probably no less than six feet in diameter. It was ridiculous. April offers for them to come up and have some pizza, which they of course go for because... If there's one thing to take away from this movie, it's that turtles love pizza of any kind. While in April's apartment, Michelangelo does some shitty impressions that I assume most kids were like me watching this and didn't understand any of the references he's making and with good reason. They're all laughing and having a good time though, and the turtles leave and April just lets the confusing encounter wash over her. Could you fucking imagine just what she's experienced in a single night. So the turtles come back to find the hideout ransacked by the foot and Splinter is gone, presumably kidnapped, or they are probably thinking he might even be dead. Raphael has a grade A freak out about it and screams a lot and they come back to April's place with sad faces and she's just like, oh no, what happened? And she just lets them in. We see the police chief call Charles about Danny having been arrested and Charles stops by with Danny to see April and the turtles all have to hide because they're in her apartment. Charles tells April to cool it with the crime story and talking about the police like she has, presumably because of whatever the police chief told him. Danny and Charles keep spotting the turtles, but they vanish shortly thereafter. And luckily, the two of them leave and they don't have to hide anymore. Charles is grilling Danny in the car about his behavior and Danny fucking bails out and runs away. And then we see how the Foot Clan operates. A young Sam Rockwell is giving the kids some kind of tour of the place where they're hiding out. It's like this big abandoned building that they've converted to storage and to like an arcade, basically. There's skateboarding and games and shit, which probably seemed like a dream in the early 90s because there was nothing better to do. So Master Tatsu, who is the main villain Shredder's right-hand man, is training the kids, and he's pretty hardcore about it and doesn't put up with any shit. And we get a real viewing of Shredder for the first time. We saw him watching the news in anger earlier, but it wasn't really the full deal, so I didn't mention it. He comes and addresses the troops, and we see Captive Splinter watching as well. Shredder's making one of the kids an official member of the foot, and he talks about how he is their father, and they all have a common goal. Shredder says he wants to get the turtles, and Danny comes forward, and you just know he's going to give them up, because Danny sucks ass in this movie, and he kind of knows where to find the turtles, so it's a pretty shitty situation. April is doing a report on the foot, and she says that they used to operate originally in Japan, and she personally thanks Raphael for having saved her on air, and I must note that she fails to mention that he is a massive humanoid turtle. So the turtles are watching the report on TV, and an argument breaks out between Raphael and Leonardo and Raphael storms out which it's like big fucking shocker in Raph's defense I could fucking see hating Leo he's such a kiss ass and I wouldn't want him leading me and he's kind of the leader of the turtles so I'm reminded of this tweet that I saw once that actually said something to the effect of if you ask someone who their favorite Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle is and they say Leonardo they are 100% a cop and it's like that's fucking great. I fucking love it. So Raphael goes to the roof to let off some steam, and Casey Jones spots Raphael from another building across the way, and he just casually watches him at first, and 
While Raphael is moping, the Foot Clan converges on him and starts kicking the ever-loving shit out of him, which Casey sees, and the other turtles are still down in the apartment and have no idea what's happening on the roof, and April comes back and suggests that they go get Raph, and they say no because it's ordinarily not a good idea to bother him when he's mad. So the Foot Clan throws Raphael into the apartment through a skylight, and a fight breaks out between the turtles and the Foot, of course. I mean... Honestly, it would be super fucking weird if no one did anything after Raph got thrown through a skylight. So Donatello points out that the foot members might actually know where Splinter is, so he says not to knock all of them out. Tatsu shows up there, and they're fighting in April's antique shop. Oh right, I think I forgot to mention, April owns an antique shop, and it's downstairs. Casey Jones comes to break up the fight finally, or at least help, and no one really knows who the fuck he is other than Raph, and that's okay. A fire starts in the shop, and the turtles have to bail out through a trapdoor in the basement. So while they're evacuating, Charles actually calls and leaves a message telling April that she's fired. If she's not really in a relationship with Charles, I don't understand their dynamic at all. No one fucking hangs out with their boss like she does. I don't care who you are. So Shredder is angry over the run-in with the turtles and punches Splinter for it. But I mean, to be fair, there's nothing more honorable than physically attacking someone who you've tied up so that they can't defend themselves, especially over something that's not really truly their fault. Shredder wants to know how the turtles can fight like they do. Tatsu also has a little shit fit over the whole experience and beats his own people up for it. I mean, some family, am I right? Danny is looking in at what monsters he's dealing with, and he seems to be at least having second thoughts about his life of bitch-made crime, stealing from people who work at real jobs to purchase their shit. So Danny goes to talk to Splinter, and Splinter tries to talk sense to Danny, and Danny complains about his father not caring about him. Splinter says that all fathers care for their sons, which also shows how concerned Splinter is about the Turtles, since he's basically their dad. April, Casey, and the Turtles all go out to a house in the country to regroup. Casey breaks the news to April about her being fired, and she doesn't really take it very well. I mean, he doesn't exactly deliver that to her very well, but... She most definitely shoots the messenger here. We get a reference to the show Moonlighting, which is another brick in the monument to how dated this movie is at times. Raphael is still out of it, and although it's never once made clear what's really even wrong with him, he's just out of commission, basically. Donnie and Casey are becoming fast friends as they're fixing up this broken-down old car there. Leonardo sits with Raphael day and night, devastated by his brother's state, and they have Raphael in a fucking tub, and they're just pouring water over his shell occasionally, like he's face down in this tub, and I'm sure pouring water over his shell is really doing something. And then Raphael wakes up and wants some food, and Leo apologizes to him. As Raphael and Leonardo reconcile, Donnie literally says, it's a Kodak moment, which is just another painful example of dated references. Everyone is still staying at the country house, and the turtles are now training. We get to see the inevitability of April and Casey's romance for a bit while they're hanging out at this farmhouse. Casey gives April a neck rub, which is basically oral for PG movies. Splinter calls out to Leonardo somehow, so they decide to have a fire to conjure his spirit, and the fire starts to turn blue, and the spirit of Splinter appears above the flames. 
he tells them that he's proud of them and that they've mastered their minds, which is more important than their bodies. Michelangelo ends up in tears because he's in touch with his emotions. The turtles come to Casey in April and tell them that it's time to go back to the city. And I guess I really can't quite wrap my head around why they had to abandon the city and go to the country to begin with, but... I mean, I guess they were all out of places to stay. So they head back and they go to the sewers and make their way to the original hideout. And they realize someone's hiding there. And it's Danny, who is a real bitch-made kid, by the way. I think I might have mentioned that a little bit, but he's a real piece of shit in this movie. He has pretty much no redeeming qualities. This movie wants me to feel for him and really give a shit about his life. And I just can't quite get there. Casey is claustrophobic, so he doesn't really sleep in the hideout with the others. He sleeps in the car. And Casey is most definitely defensive about his claustrophobia, but it's like, dude, it's nothing to be ashamed of or anything. A lot of people have claustrophobia. Danny sneaks out in the night, and Casey is in the truck trying to sleep and sees Danny go, so he chases after him and finds him going to the Foot Clan's hideout. I just find it fucking hilarious that the Foot Clan wears their ninja outfits at all times. Like, even when casually hanging out, they're just chilling in these little fucking black suits. It's so funny to me. Are they fucking wearing these dirty ass things in the shower too? Who the fuck knows? Danny comes back to Splinter and he's very conflicted because he's an idiot without a mind of his own. Splinter talks about his master Yoshi and how he had a rival named Oroku Saki and they fought for the affections of a woman. Oroku Saki killed the woman and then killed Yoshi because she clearly wanted Yoshi more. Splinter somehow clawed up Oroku Saki's face after the fact and Danny asks what happened to this Oroku Saki. Splinter says that no one knows, but Danny's headband has the Oroku Saki's symbol on it, thus relaying to the viewer the notion that Oroku Saki is actually the Shredder, the main villain of this movie. Shredder catches Danny leaving Splinter and knows that something is up, and Shredder finds a drawing of Leonardo on Danny. Now Danny knows that they're definitely going to kill Splinter, and the turtles are off for the big showdown. They fight some members of the foot in the sewer, but it's anticlimactic, honestly. Like, I don't really think it's that great. Casey and Danny try to spring Splinter, but get caught by Tatsu and company. Tatsu kind of fucks Casey Jones up for a little bit at first, but Casey hits him with a golf club, and it does that ridiculous thing where the blow from the club knocks him all the way across the room, like when he hit Raphael earlier with the cricket bat. Sam Rockwell suggests that they all converge on Casey at once, which would actually be a winning strategy for sure, and they just don't do that enough in movies, honestly. He says that they have a loyalty to Shredder, and Splinter immediately shoots that down and says that Shredder uses them and doesn't give a shit about them even a little bit. So just like that, this gang of kids does nothing to stop the good guys, luckily. I can't fucking imagine how difficult it was to make these turtles look even close to right when they were talking. It just baffles me. So the theme song is pretty fucking cheesy, but I kind of fucking love it. They're on a rooftop fighting the foot, you know, and they beat them all, but Shredder just appears and he's ready to fuck their shit up. They, of course, underestimate him and make fun of him and get their asses handed to them with the first go-round. Down on the ground, Splinter realizes that 
the fight is happening up top and all the turtles converge on Shredder, but still opt to take him on one at a time when they get to him for some reason, and they keep losing, of course. So Leo flips out when Shredder suggests that Splinter is dead, and Leo basically lets his emotions get the better of him, and Shredder takes advantage and gets Leo on the fucking ground and is about to make his kill stroke. Shredder says that he's going to kill Leo if the other turtles don't hand over their weapons, so they do without thinking twice. Then he naturally mocks them for being such dumb shits because they clearly could have beaten him if it had only been one that they lost. It's a pretty good point that he was making. You know, they, they could have fought him three to one and probably still won. So he goes to fuck their shit up, but Splinter shows up on the edge of the roof and deliberately calls attention to himself. Splinter explains that he knows who Shredder is and that Splinter was actually the one to leave his face scarred to shit and finding this out doesn't put Shredder in the best mood. Shredder charges at him with what looks to be a spear or a staff of some sort and Splinter moves in the nick of time and Shredder is left dangling hanging onto his staff weapon at one end and at the other end his staff is held by Splinter. So Shredder goes to attack Splinter who happens to be the only thing holding him up and Splinter just fucking lets go obviously and that was really the only move to make there. So Shredder falls into a garbage truck on the ground and Casey Jones promptly activates the crushing mechanism despite probably not being properly trained for such tasks. We see the reunion of Danny and Charles but I honestly had no fucking investment in this relationship at all, so I don't really give a shit. April is pissed at Charles, who fired her, and he wants her to cover the story about defeating the foot because no one else on the planet can hold a microphone and ask someone a bunch of stupid fucking questions like her. So he promises her an office and a promotion, and she agrees. So Sam Rockwell tells the police where to look for the stolen stuff, and that's that, I guess, with that whole thing. I mean, you know, there's no way they could just take Sam Rockwell and company in on grand larceny charges or anything. We get a kiss with Casey and April, and I could not have been rooting for these two getting together less, and it's just, it's terrible. Then the turtles are all trying to think of the word to describe how great they did, and Splinter says he always liked Kawabunga, and then this rap song kicks in, like, I think it freeze frames, and this rap song kicks in that is so of its time I can't even really explain it. Like, it's super late 80s, early 90s hip-hop, and it's just fucking great. I mean, honestly, I fucking love it. So praise for this movie. The story is very fundamental, but it's a good first outing for the Turtles. The personalities in this movie are pretty solid. I do like them, especially Casey Jones. I really like him. The puppeteering is amazing, with the exception of Splinter, in my opinion, because that's just bad. For the criticism, I would just say, you know, a lot of references have not aged well from this movie, so maybe try and pick things that aren't going to be dated the second that you say them. So for trivia, we have Robin Williams, who was a big fan of the franchise, provided Judith Hogue with information regarding her character through his comic book collection. The two were co-starring in Cadillac Man from 1990 when the Turtles film went into production. This was the highest grossing independent film until The Blair Witch Project from 1999. 
Judith Hogue was not asked to reprise her role as April in the film's sequels due to her own personal complaining, particularly about the six-day work schedule and the amount of violence in the movie. Paige Cherko would take over the role in the two subsequent movies, and she was way better in every way, in my opinion, honestly. She was a lot more likable personality-wise, and obviously she was pretty fucking hot. So... The turtle costumes were created by Jim Henson's Creature Shop in London. Jim Henson said that the creatures were the most advanced that he had ever worked with. The creatures were first made out of fiberglass and then remolded out of clay. The film was set in New York City, but actually much of the filming took place in North Carolina, with only a couple of location shots done in New York City to capture the famous landmark areas. This was the last theatrical film that Jim Henson was associated with. He died about a month and a half after the film's release. Josh Pies, as Raphael, is the only actor who physically portrays and voices the same turtle. All the other turtles are portrayed by separate body and voice actors. Corey Feldman said he was offered only $1,500 to do voice work for this film. He accepted, believing the producers who told him that this was only a small, low-budget, independent film, hoping that it would have moderate success on VHS, if they were lucky. The movie ended up making millions of dollars at the box office. One could speculate that this is why Corey Feldman probably didn't come back in the sequel. He wasn't there for the second movie, but he came back around for the third one, and I'm sure he probably worked out a better deal, and the work well probably had run dry pretty bad. This movie portrays Hamato Yoshi as Splinter's master slash owner, and Splinter learned his ninja skills through observing and mimicking him. This is true to the original TMNT comics, but was the first time this version of Splinter's origin was seen. In the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon from 1987, which was the first ever adaptation of TMNT, Master Splinter is Hamato Yoshi and became a rat after being exposed to a mutagen. Pizza Hut engaged in a $20 million marketing campaign tied to the film, despite the fact that Domino's Pizza was used as product placement in the film itself. Items included advertising in print, radio and television, and several rebate coupons. It took three puppeteers to operate the Splinter puppet. Kevin Clash performs the puppet while the facial expressions are remote-controlled by another puppeteer, and the arms are controlled by the puppeteer who works along with Kevin during the performances of the puppet. The motors that were built into each turtle head to create facial expressions were packed very tightly into it and were very uncomfortable for performers in the suit. Josh Pies has described the noise as like being in Grand Central Station at rush hour with a tin can over your head. That's fucking rough. So for info and ratings, we have a runtime of 93 minutes, a budget of 13.5 million, an opening weekend of 25.4 million, worldwide gross 202.1 million, IMDb rating 6.7, Rotten Tomato Critics score 41%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 81%, personal rating 4.5 out of 5 stars this one's solid i fucking love it i still revisit it all the time but i do see that it's deeply flawed and i understand that so i gave it the 4.5 out of 5 so anyway that was our episode for today i hope you enjoyed it it was truly truly random obviously you know let me know if you have any requests or suggestions or anything like that and i'd be happy to entertain them and see if i want to do them all right everyone well i hope you have a good rest of your day bye now
Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.